Hello and welcome to another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich, where conversation is alive and well. He's considered one of the greatest entertainers of the 20th century, living out a century himself. He is Bob Hope. And there's a new book out called Dear Bob, Bob Hope's Wartime Correspondence with the G.I.s of World War II. It's written by Martha Bolton, along with Bob Hope's daughter, Linda Hope, and it couldn't be timed any better. Bob Hope and Company did an incredible service for the fighting men and women of World War II. The United States government gave the USO the duty of serving the boys in our armed forces. From somewhere in North Africa. From somewhere in the South Pacific. From the home front to the fighting fronts. The number one comedian of the armed forces, Bob Hope. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob broadcasting from the Norton Supply Base, Hope. This is Bob Mosquito Network, Hope. Yes, sir, this is Bob Army Camp, Hope. This is Bob, don't ask me where I am because I don't know, and even if I did know, I couldn't tell because it's a military secret, Hope. <laughs> In the book we're about to talk about with Martha Bolton, there's a collection of personal letters, postcards, packages, and more sent back and forth among Hope and the troops and their loved ones back home. And rare photographs add to the experience. So let's now meet one of Bob Hope's inner circle. She was one of his joke writers for a while, and she's penned this beautiful book. Please welcome Martha Bolton as we go on mic. Well, Martha, first off, your curriculum vitae is unbelievable when it comes to comedy and humor. Is it true what it says in the back of this? Why would it not be true? Over 80 books (laughs) about humor and inspiration? 88? Is that the number? Yeah, yeah, it, I started a while back, and uh, <laughs> I did uh, at least one a year usually, and sometimes two, and a few times three. So it adds up after a while. Well, that's you, you that's, look back and you. I was going to say that's prolific. I, I don't think I've talked to anybody outside of Isaac Asimov who can come close to you. That's uh, very <laughs> impressive. And before we get started in on this phenomenal book about Bob Hope and the World War II years, there are just a couple things. One is you were the first female to break the, the glass ceiling in terms of the Bob Hope writing circle. Tell me a bit about uh, that. For the staff, yeah, I was the first female staff writer. Um, and uh, it, it happened, uh, actually it happened out of a disappointment because I had written... I was trying to get into uh, television script writing uh, as far as like a sitcom. And I had been writing for Phyllis Diller and Joan Rivers, and I was having success with that. And so I met this gentleman who was the creative consultant for Mama's Family and had also written for Carol Burnett. And uh, he invited me down. I I had uh, read his book and, and told him that we had a lot in common because he wrote for Phyllis Diller. I wrote for Phyllis Diller. He would roast the people at his work, and I roasted people uh, at my church, and then also at, uh, you know, for different people that would want me to come uh, to write for their boss, getting uh, roasted. And so I was doing a lot of that. So we we had this in common. So I just wrote and told him that, and told him I enjoyed his book. Well, he invited me and my husband down to see a taping of Mama's Family. And I had taken this scrapbook of my writings because I was writing a newspaper column at the time as well. And I had that that in there. I had different magazine articles in there and then jokes that I had written and uh, handed it to this poor man. And, and he, he had to sit and go through page by page and read some of them. But he was very impressed and 
and then uh, suggested that I write a couple of uh, a spec script, at least one, um, for Mama's family. So at the time, at that particular time, my typewriter was broken. Hmm. So for I didn't want to waste time. So for a quarter, for 20 minutes, I went down to the local library and typed up a couple of spec scripts for Mama's family. Got it to him, and he liked it. And then he got it to the producer, Ed Simmons, and then he called me up and told me that he liked my work and was going to call me in the next season to pick some show ideas. And what happens in Hollywood, you get all excited and then the show gets canceled. Right. So I was, I was disappointed for sure. But Gene um, also happened to be a writer for Bob Hope and then recommended me to Bob. And then, uh, gave me a topic to write on and I, I wrote on it and then sat back and waited. And then one night after 11 o'clock at night, the phone rang and it was Bob Hope. So oh. he told me he liked my work and he continued giving me assignments and I continued writing for him until, uh, till the end. And yeah. I became his first staff writer. Well, it's, it's so interesting. And we'll, we'll talk now about the new book, but the book about, Bob's first 90 years and his work with the presidents. I mean, there's so many aspects to this man's life. And I just fascinated to think that you had to pass the gauntlet of Bob Hope and what he thought was funny. And obviously you did. You reached a very high mark is what I'm getting at. Yeah. And it was, it was interesting because he was such a nice man. You'd forget who he was because he felt like you're talking to your uncle. And, uh, so the meetings were so warm and friendly and, and, um, very uh, encouraging and, and fun as he was such a quick wit. And then you'd later would go to some event like at a football arena and they're honoring him and they're having flyovers and marching bands. And, and then you are quickly reminded or a party and there's presidents walking around former presidents and uh, current ones. And you're reminded of, um, uh, who he was. He was, I mean, just unparalleled in, in his uh, uh, fame and, and his talent and his heart. Just amazing man. Well, the book is called Dear Bob, Bob Hope's Wartime Correspondence with the G.I.s of World War II and uh, takes a, a different tack. It's not just about the performances, but it's about the intimate connections. You wrote this with Linda Hope, Bob's daughter, and it's appropriate because a lot of the book has to do with Bob kind of leaving his family to take care of another family, the uh, the overseas right. family. Right, and, and that's a sacrifice that isn't talked about much, but uh, for sure he... Uh, he was giving everything he had, but so was the family. They were, uh, they would go on him sometimes with go with him to some of these trips, but um, to stay back home and and do Christmas and put off their Christmas until Dad got home. Um, you know, was a sacrifice. We're not just talking about a bevy of letters here and there. We're talking about huge numbers coming in in the days before email and then him sending out quite a few correspondents back. Let's talk a little yes. bit about the volume of mail, and then we'll focus on how it all got started in the first place. But how much mail did he get on a weekly basis? 38,000 fan letters a week. And this is from <laughs> soldiers, sailors, Marines, etc.? Right. Oh. He was the postman's nightmare and, the, and GI's hero. So he... 
and he tried his best to answer most of them. He he really did. And thanks to his secretary, Marjorie Hughes, who uh, had the foresight to know the historical significance of all of this, uh, she kept great copies of his responses, which is unusual sometimes. Um, so, and it was that, you know, with the carbon copy and the onion skin paper, but she had his his responses and uh, kept the the soldiers' letters and um, they're all now. When, I, when we first started working on the book, which was when Bob was alive and uh, this was, the letters were kept at his house. And uh, then after his death, uh, they've been given to the Library of Congress and they're up there. So I would go up to Washington, D.C. to uh, to finish the research and finish up the book. Uh, so they were in both places. But yeah, there's a volume of, there's a picture in the book that shows uh, just some of the boxes of mm. all the materials that they sent there. One of the things that's evident to me, and I've I've been a fan of Bob Hope, and I, I study show business for a living, is that, uh, yes, he was surrounded by such a talented group of writers. But you can almost tell in those days he didn't have somebody writing responses for him. It's in his voice, uh, some of these responses, right. which is what makes it so special. And I'll, I'll just read one of them on page 132, uh, his response to, uh, I believe it's Harry Klein of New Jersey, wrote about the, the front and Bob says, believe me when I said that laughter up at the front lines is a very precious thing, precious to those grand guys giving and taking the awful business that goes on there. There's a lump the size of Grant's tomb in your throat when they come up to you and shake your hand and mumble thanks. That's a very powerful metaphor and a very beautifully written piece. So um, how did it all get started, the Bob Hope overseas work? Because it started domestically, didn't it? It, uh, it started at Marchfield in Riverside, California. Uh, on May 6, 1941, and he had gone over there. Uh, his producer had suggested that he go because, unbeknownst uh, to Bob, his uh, the producer's brother was stationed there, so he was wanting to send in uh, entertainment there. So uh, Bob wasn't sure what you know what it was going to be about, or or he he wasn't sure. He he had a you know, very successful radio show. He was already getting uh, major stars to come on. And so he thought, well, I'll, I'll give it a try. And when he walked out and and then started performing and heard the laughter of the GIs, uh, he, he just knew that this was his audience. He fell in love with that audience, as any comic would if, if they were getting such a response. But then over the years... Through these letters, you could see where that relationship went far beyond just their laughter. It became a heart relationship. It, they were, they weren't just some name on a paper. They were his buddies. They would write to him as if they were writing their best buddy or a family member. He was part of their family, and uh, and same with Bob. They were part of his family. He would call them his sons and daughters. And that just continued. That's what kept him going for 50 years. Mm. He knew what these soldiers had sacrificed. He knew that he had seen them up close and personal. He had, they had gotten into his heart. And you don't keep doing it for 50 years if there's not 
far more than just their laughter. Oh, so that, true, so was, true. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he he was out there in Nam, he was out there at Desert Storm, and he was just as warmly greeted and just as funny at, at being ninety years old and making kids eighteen to, to thirty years old laugh their their socks off was just beautiful to see. As the war begins in earnest when we're attacked on December 7th and all that, that's when things uh, really take off. And Bob Hope does take off with a troop to go overseas. And, you know, we're not talking about 2021 and the, the safety protocols in place. I mean, we're talking rickety airplanes. Maybe you'll tell the story about the plane that went down in the, in the water. A lot of danger is, is part of this mission, isn't it? Right. He had, he had close calls, not only with bombs going on near him. (laughs) Uh, But also, like you said, that just the uh, logistics of getting to the different shows on different islands and and the weather. And uh, one thing that I found fascinating was so many times they were told, well, the weather uh, conditions weren't safe for him to go. And there was this group of GIs that couldn't see the show uh, the major show where 38,000 people are up on the side of a hill. This was just a, a small group of guys on a nearby island. And he would be told that the weather conditions weren't good to go. And he'd go, oh, no, no, we, we, we can do it. We could do it. Like He's making the decisions hmm. uh, whether or not to go. And he, to play a character so many times in, in films where uh, he was – so not contagious. Uh, 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 he was certainly one of the most fearless people that yeah. you'd ever meet, I think. That's so true. I mean, his character with Hope and Crosby movies was always any way to get out of a fight, any way to get out of danger uh, and to scurry off and, and hide. But he was valiant in that respect. And I've got to give credit, and I'm sure you do, and I know you do in the book, to the people he took along with him, to other performers, including Jerry Colonna, of course, with the mustache, but also uh, Francis Langford and, and many other stars of that era that uh, did their part. They pitched in. I guess he had a, a good power of persuasion going for him. He did. And that was what was so fascinating, too, about that time is everybody pulled together. They couldn't do enough. They were uh, raising the, helping him raise the war bonds. Uh, they were just all all supporting the troops and uh, and definitely he had set a, a, an amazing example of that as did the whole troop uh, they just couldn't do enough and people wanted to help and even then uh, perhaps even more poignantly the uh, idea of bringing a beautiful starlet along to just make the guys in the in the group mostly guys go crazy was a Bob Hope staple, wasn't it? I mean, later it was Joey Heatherton, but back then it was some of the stars, uh, the leggy, beautiful uh, actresses and starlets of the day. Right. He he would take he would take the top and um, just give the give the uh, uh, soldiers uh, not only a reminder of what they were fighting for, as he says, but it just took them back home. It took them to their girlfriend. It took them to their family. It took them to the memories of, of uh, listening to him on the radio in the uh, safety of their home. And it, it, he just knew what hit the uh, soldiers. And they say that in their letters that you just know, knew where to uh, hit to bring us home. And, yeah. and one, one soldier said to, to uh, you knew how to, 
bring the chins up off the belt buckles. And <laughs> it's so true because yeah. they just lifted, uh, he just lifted their spirits. I did allude to to that one incident, Martha, involving a plane. I, I think it's domestic, but it, it could have ended very badly. You want to recall that yes. story? Yeah, that uh, that happened in Loriton uh, in Australia. Oh, Australia. And okay. uh, yeah, and and they had I- engine trouble. Actually, what happened was Bob had taken take they uh, was trying his hand at flying the plane, and and through no fault of Bob's. One of the uh, engines went out, so the pilot got back on, and he was having to make a water landing like uh, Captain Sully, <laughs> and uh, he he came down in the water uh, and then came to rest on a sandbar, and they had told them that uh, had, had, uh, had the plane hit the sandbar first, it would have exploded, uh, but they had a boat come out and get him. And you, there's pictures in there uh, that we share of that uh, of that occurrence, and it was life threatening. I mean, this is just another one of the mm. life threatening situations. And then what happened was he he comes into town, and uh, he didn't have any cash on him. And the local postmaster, who didn't believe it was Bob Hope at the beginning anyway, uh, then he had he lent him eleven pounds to get him a room and, and food. And then that, that uh, later that night, they put on a show, uh, the whole troop put on a show for this little town of about six, uh, about 600 people came to the show, practically uh, the whole town, I think. And then after the show, uh, they all stayed till four in the morning uh, doing the hokey pokey. So that town continues to this day celebrating the day Hollywood fell into their town and and they have the hokey pokey they serve <laughs> pie lemon meringue pie and uh, it's just a big celebration this all of it can you imagine the whole troop and Bob, you know Bob Hope and his whole troop just suddenly appearing in your town well, the hard way. <laughs> everything points to the goal, which is to get people to forget their troubles, even troubles <laughs> landing a plane, almost crashing, turning it into a, a fun moment and trying to take some of the, the pain away. There's so many examples of that. And one of the things that's cool about this book, not only the letters, but the photographs, Martha, that you and Linda have supplied, people don't see Bob Hope. They see him on stage, even in those old reels, but they don't see him visiting the wounded and uh, touring some of the battle sites and so forth and really getting deep dives into what's going on over there. Right, right. And uh, and we did that intentionally. We wanted to show uh, the closeness of Bob and, and the troops. We Like you say, we, we see them in the audiences that are just thousands and thousands, but these up-close-and-personal experiences that – that uh, Bob saw er- every time he went over there and um, just spent time with each patient and uh, just wanted to make them laugh. He, mm. he, he even uh, told the truth not to, not to cry in front of the soldiers, but to, we were, they mm. were there to make them laugh. They were there to give, get their mind on something else, uh, get their mind on home, get their hopes up. They could lose it, which I'm sure they probably did once they got outside, but when they were there to, to uplift the spirits. 
We're talking here about this fabulous new book, which is called Dear Bob, Bob Hope's Wartime Correspondence with the GIs of World War II. And um, Martha Bolton is here. And being a writer, I want to talk to you about how amazing it was for him to do so many shows, sometimes many a day, traveling all over the world under difficult conditions, and having so much um, relevant material. And that means... You'd have a joke that would be funny to the people in, I don't know, New Caledonia because something happened in New Caledonia. Talk a little bit, if you will, with me about the writers who helped him craft specific targeted material because that was what made the show so spectacular for those guys. Absolutely. They they thought uh, when he would come out and give give a joke about their commanding officers uh, – about the food in their area, <laughs> about the dangers in their area, they couldn't believe it. It was it was like their friends all just sitting around and, and talking uh, over over chow, and they 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 didn't know how he was doing it. But what he would do, number one, he got a lot of the information from the letters that the guys mm. would write mm-hmm. of what they were dealing with, and then uh, the writers would find out what was going on and Bob would hear about something and he'd, he'd, you know, take the writers aside or call them back in the States, say, you know, get me some stuff on this. And and that's something he kept doing throughout his entire career was that he was on top of what was happening now. And he would call and, and sometimes you'd have hardly any time at all to write material for it. And what was so amazing about him is he would take that material, especially in World War II, he would take that material, walk onto stage, and in World War II, there were no cue cards at all. And he would walk onto stage with brand new jokes that had been handed to him, and he would deliver them straight from memory. He didn't have mm. papers with him. He just did it, boom, boom, boom. He had to have had a photographic memory because he would do that as well when when I was working for him and we'd write up to the last minute jokes and and uh, for his personal appearances, again, he didn't have uh, two cards. So he would go out, add new jokes to his act and just do it straight from memory. Years and years ago, when he came to Boston, he was about 81 or 82. This was the time, you know, he's still doing his specials, of course, and people would sometimes criticize him for reading cue cards on the specials. But you'd see him in a live show in his 80s, first of all, tap dancing, singing, doing shtick with the audience and being very current and not using any cues at all. And you realize he still had that amazing ability. It's a gift. I mean, that's something you you can't make up. And it started back in World War II. You could see it. If you look at the old clips of uh, his performances, you, you see he's just talking off the top of his head. Well, what he did brilliantly, was one of the first to do it, although Groucho did it in a few of the Marx Brothers films, is he broke the wall in the movies. He would step out of character and talk right to the audience. He seemed to have that incredible knack of honing in on you as an individual in a, in a sea of thousands. And I think that's, uh, that's also a credit, yeah. Uh, one, yeah, one or two he, more one or two more things, and you've been great. Um, what role, well, not role, but what play, let me do that again. What place did the government, the federal government have in all of this? I mean, they obviously were very supportive and they, they saw the incredible impact that he had as a, as a promo for the troops, as a, as a way to bolster 
Morell. Well, from the very beginning, uh, Bob wanted to join the military, uh, but uh, Roosevelt felt that his services would be best utilized entertaining the troops and building up their morale. So Bob accepted that challenge, and uh, obviously not just for World War II, but he took it even further than they were uh, asking for and did all the wars in his lifetime. Uh, and in his time as well, was a champion of the uh, mm. GI's needs and and whatever the uh, uh, conditions they needed to be fixed. He would he would call up Congress. He would call up the president and uh, and be their spokesman. Uh, so he he had all of that going for him. But but also um, he just he just gave himself and the and he there's one. Uh, chapter in there uh, from uh, a, a guest, a, a columnist who uh, was talking about when Bob uh, just went before Desert Storm, when he ran into a GI at a restaurant and uh, the GI came over to his table, thanked him for everything he had done. And then Bob told the waiter later that uh, he wanted to pick up the soldier's tab, anything they wanted. And then he walked over to the soldier and he said, you know, come with me. And uh, they, they went over to a pay phone and Bob dials a number that he knew by heart uh, because the soldier had asked him, was he going to do anything for Desert Storm? And so uh, he, he dials this number and it just so happened to be uh, Ronald Reagan's, Reagan's uh, bedroom phone. Hmm. And the president was watching a Western on the TV and then Bob brought up the prospect of going to Desert Storm. So he, you know, the, the government wanted him to do the shows, but he also uh, kind of propelled that himself. Uh, yeah. He, if they were going to be there, he wanted to be there, too. He was uh, certainly up for the challenge at any age. He lived a full century. He died in 2003. And I just want to mention that beautiful um, cartoon or, or animated piece at the end. Uh, cartoonist Michael Ramirez uh, allowed you to use it, Bob Hope, when he passed away. The microphone and the shadow of the microphone in the spotlight is of a, a man saluting. Um, it could be the soldier saluting Bob or Bob saluting them. It doesn't matter. It's a beautiful uh, piece. It reminds me of the Mel Blanc uh, piece of art that I have in my office where there's just an, a microphone and all the characters are crying because he's gone. But what a great tribute. And, and this book is a wonderful tribute. It really is. It, it reminds us. Not only that, I want to just mention as a fan, not a fan, but as a uh, follower of World War II history, this is as good a book to inform you of the the steps that the war took as any that I've read because you cover it all from the opening salvo to uh, VE and VJ Day. Well, thank you. I, uh, I wanted to put the reader, and, and Linda as well uh, wanted this, to put the reader back in that time, and and, uh, and then and then when you hear what Bob did in in that time and and so many other heroes, uh, it can't help but by the time you get it, at the end of the book, you just go, wow! Uh, mm -hmm. There was so much given uh, of selfless service that we all need to be very thankful for. It's called Dear Bob, Bob Hope's Wartime Correspondence with the GIs of World War II. You can actually leave through it uh, and pick out sections to just stop at and enjoy 
And uh, and you might get a little emotional when you read these, but that's the intent. Uh, it's beautifully done. Thank you so much, Martha. And please thank Linda Hope, uh, your co-author, for us as well. I sure will. Thanks for having us. Dear Bob, Bob Hope's wartime correspondence with the GIs of World War II by Martha Bolton and Bob Hope's daughter, Linda Hope. A true keepsake. Thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to Ken Carberry at Chart Productions, and to all of you guys out there for listening to the podcast, sharing it with friends, subscribing, and downloading. Certainly appreciate it as we grow in numbers and approach our 200th episode. You can find out more about the podcast and my new book, On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio, at my website, jordanrich.com. Until next time, be well so you can do good. Take care.